want to give you just a little bit of uh, something encouraging. You want something encouraging today, right? There's been something that's happened this week that's so exciting, and I got to tell you about this um, because it is just it has blown me away. Um, every week we kind of watch where the messages are downloaded around the world, and and we have kind of a a contingent in China. I don't know why. There are about seven or eight cities in China that routinely download messages. And uh, that's just so cool to see. The four largest cities in China uh, download Harbor Rock stuff. And I don't have a clue how they found us, uh, but they're consistent in doing it week after week. But in the last week, something amazing has happened. Um, in the city of I think it's called Chungking, okay? Not the, not the little noodles, right? The city of Chungking, there have been 572 downloads of one sermon this week. Now, I don't know what it is. It's a sermon from our early days, like April of 2011. It was a message on Psalm 63, nothing spectacular. Um, it's about David fleeing from Absalom. And he calls on the Lord very fervently for help. And he says, my soul thirsts for the Lord and my flesh yearns for God. And it was a very simple study. And the three principles of the study, I want to just let you know this, was about our witness. That it should be open and unashamed and humble and constant. And, and that we should continue to depend on the Lord because he's been so faithful to us. Now, I'm not sure why that particular message has caught on in Chungking. But in a communist country uh, where house churches now are starting to thrive, did you know that about China? That in the middle of their oppression, the Christianity is thriving and house churches are thriving in China. And I just, I don't know if that particular message has brought somebody uh, comfort and strength, whether it's kind of put some wind in their sails, so to speak. But apparently all throughout the city of Chongqing, uh, that one message from our little church has, has impacted somebody, either that or we got some guy in his basement downloading 572 times for some reason. But I just, I feel so overwhelmed by that and so grateful to the Lord that for that city and us, that there is a connection. Now, I don't know if you know about Chungking, all right? I want you to take out a pen. I want you to write this word down because I want you to look at it later. I hoped we could show a picture this morning, but we, we can't do it. C-H-O-N-G. C-H-O-N-G-Q-I-N-G. I had never really heard about it other than seeing that it downloads our messages. But Chungking is the fastest growing urban center on the planet. Now, I've, I've had fun researching this. More than half a million people move there every year in search of a better life. It's the economic hub of western China. And since the government made the, the surrounding territory part of the municipal control, uh, it has grown. It is now the world's biggest municipality. It's got 31 million people. That one city has more people than Iraq or Peru or Malaysia. And it is expected to grow by more than 10 million people in the next 13 years. Now, why has this happened? And, and I, don't have an expo, I don't have an answer for that other than to say, isn't it exciting that for the last four days there have been 100 downloads a day of that one message. There are already 26 this morning. I checked before I went to church. For some reason, in the city of Chongqing, China, God is moving in an exciting way, and he's using our little church to do that. 
So I just feel like we need to pray for them this morning. And we're going to do that again in two weeks. We're going to pray for China at prayer meeting. But uh, I I just want to pray for them this morning, ask you to join with me, uh, that God would encourage the believers there. There must be some believers there, and they must be in love with the Lord, and they must be excited about what God's doing in their life. And maybe this is giving some, some boldness to them to really stand for the Lord. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning that the church is worldwide, that your work and your word spreads throughout this world as you told us to do to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And Lord, we don't know anybody in this city in China, but we thank you this morning that there's a connection between Harbor Rock Tabernacle and them. And we pray you would encourage them and strengthen them, Father, the believers that are there, that you would give them strength, give them boldness in their witness, Lord, that you would bring a great movement of your spirit in that humongous city, Lord, that is... Uh, the fastest growing city on the face of the earth, Lord, that your gospel would move in a powerful way in that city. And Lord, that somehow we would be able to make a connection with them and Lord, be encouraged by them and that they would be encouraged by us. Lord, we thank you for our brothers and sisters in China. And we pray that you would help them this morning and give them strength. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go home and, and Google image that that city. You will be shocked. It looks like Manhattan. I had no idea. I thought, you know, a little you know, rice paddy. I mean, what do I know about China? This is a huge, huge metropolitan city. So do that for me, okay? By, by 2 o'clock today, go home, Google it, look at this city. You'll be amazed and it'll make you really want to pray. Okay, let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Matthew. The book of Matthew, chapter 2. This has been a year of transformation for us, and, and Randy talked about it, and uh, Adam and I were talking about it a couple of minutes ago, that there are a lot of stories that have taken place in the last year. We've seen marriages, and we've seen engagements, and we've seen children born and dedicated to the Lord, and uh, we've also seen some significant spiritual events. Some people in this room weren't saved a year ago, and praise the Lord that they are. Some people have really rededicated their lives and recommitted themselves. I remember Mark standing up here and talking about what God was doing in his life and the two girls from the youth group and God's been moving in our youth group and, and our children's ministry and, and children are getting saved and, and dedicating themselves to the Lord. I mean, it's just really exciting and, it's, and we've baptized people. Remember the, the baptisms at the Stagers and the baptisms at camp. And the testimonies that came out of that. Some really awesome pictures. If you haven't seen those on our Facebook site, look at those pictures of people being baptized. It's easy to forget that, isn't it? It's easy when you get kind of post-Christmas and everybody's kind of, ugh, and everybody's coughing and sneezing and wanting to lay in bed for 10 days and do nothing because they feel yucky. It's, it's hard to, to remember sometimes what God has done in our midst and how people have matured and been strengthened in their faith. And there's something really exciting about that. I was thinking about that this week. We were away for a couple of days in North Carolina. And, and I just thought it's so exciting to see genuine faith take hold in a believer's life. The Lord loves it when we show our love for him. The Lord loves it when we express our gratitude to him and show how much we're grateful to him for what he has done. And we, we show that most of all by living out our faith every day. And about being unashamed for him. Like I imagine those believers in China are, are struggling to do today. 
It's believers in Chungking that are, that are struggling. Can we live out our faith? Can we really stand for the Lord in the midst of, of what's going on? Now, on the opposite side, there are a few things that, that dismay the Lord more, or that the Lord dislikes more than spiritual insincerity. What is spiritual insincerity? It's, it's where we put on kind of a disingenuous show. Where, where we act out the part, where we, we try to impress somebody by, by an impression rather than by the real expression of who we are in the Lord. And what we're doing intentionally in our mind is, is, is kind of acting out a part like we're someone we really aren't. Like we have convictions that we don't really want to live out. And that shows a duplicitous attitude in our heart. It's one thing that's so dangerous that we have to guard against. Now, the Bible talks about spiritual uh, sincerity in a number of places. And let me give you just a couple verses. Maybe you want to write these down too. You can look at them later. But the Lord greatly values spiritual sincerity. Isaiah 33 says that the only ones who can live in the presence of the Lord, who is a consuming fire, are people who walk righteously and speak with sincerity. Acts 2 describes the early church as a place where day to day they continued with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart and praising God and that the Lord added to the number daily those who were being saved. 2 Corinthians 2 says that God leads us to triumph in Christ and that we're a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are saved and those who are perishing because we're not like many who peddle the word of God, but in sincerity as from God, we speak Christ in the sight of God. And Hebrews 10 challenges us. Hebrews 10 tells us to enter with confidence in the holy presence of God through Christ our high priest and to draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. So what is that telling us? It's saying that a sincere walk, sincere praise, sincere words of witness, and a sincere heart are all characteristics of someone who genuinely loves the Lord. Someone who, whose life is dedicated and yielded to His Spirit. That that's how we're distinguished. Not by duplicity, not by hypocrisy, not by insincerity, not by a, a fake impression of being somebody that we're really not when we're outside these walls. But somebody who is sincere for the Lord. And it's interesting that this is how the world evaluates us as believers. The world looks at us, and this is the one test for us. Even though non-believers don't have spirit-filled discernment, they're not led by the Lord in terms of their understanding, they don't really know, and I'm not being pejorative here, I'm just saying the actual truth, they don't really know what a believer should look like, and yet they do know what a believer shouldn't look like. It's interesting, if you look at opinion polls from non-believers as they talk about Christianity and about the church and about Christians, the number one reason that people give for not being interested in God or interested in Christianity is a lack of authenticity among Christians. In other words, the prevailing perception is that there isn't a consistent match between what Christians say and how they actually live. And the world views that as hypocritical 
and insincere. Now, whether or not that's actually true and whether or not we want to accept it as true, the fact is, is that's how we're seen. And that has apparently become a great hindrance for people in being interested in the gospel and Christianity and church. But the response of the American church over the last 20 or 30 years has not been to say, well, then our reaction should be that we should talk about holiness, that we should talk about maturing, that we should talk about discipleship. The response of the American church has been to try to manufacture authenticity. To try to say, well, we'll we'll create an atmosphere that seems authentic or we'll act in a certain way that will that will kind of show that somehow we're authentic. But the problem is authenticity isn't created through programs. It's a matter of the heart. And the world evaluates that us that way and the Lord evaluates us that way. And along with the work of the Holy Spirit to challenge and convict hearts, there's, there's really few things that will draw people to Christ more than disciples of Jesus Christ who are in love with the Lord. I need you to really hear that this morning, and I need to hear it, that there are few things in this next year that will draw people to Christ and draw people to the gospel and draw people to an understanding of God's grace than us living out a sincere, passionate love for the Lord and having a sincere heart that people would know Christ as their Savior. Jesus was right. The two greatest commandments, love me completely and love other people as yourself. And every measure of success that we have, every measure of effectiveness that we have in our personal ministry and our church ministry will be dependent on that. Do we love the Lord with all our hearts and do we love people as ourselves and the extent to which we're able to express that sincerely in the coming year will be the extent to which lives are changed as a result of our ministries and the lord really impressed that upon my heart this week as we came to this passage i know that's a long introduction and i know we're kind of past christmas but let's just look at one more thought here from christmas because herod here in matthew chapter 2 is a very interesting study i've never preached him before but as I studied this this week, the Lord really put some interesting insights there that I'd never seen before. And I was surprised how much direct application there is here in this text, especially as we come to the end of an old year and the start of a new year. The Bible says that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and it's profitable to teach us and convict us. And actually, we can look at a murderous, jealous, unrighteous king who hated Jesus Christ, and we can learn as much from him as we can from the Apostle Paul. So let's read the text. Matthew chapter 2, we're going to read quite a bit here. This is familiar to you, but let's read verses 1 to 18, and then we'll focus in on this disingenuous king that we see here. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi, or wise men from the east, arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them when the Messiah was, excuse me, where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, 
are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you will come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi to determine from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star, which they had seen in the east, went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming in the house, they saw the child with Mary's mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. Now when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph, who's faithful, doesn't say a word, got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Now when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, verse 16, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined for the Magi. This was spoken, this, what, then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. Three prophecies fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. Now, there are a number of kings in history who were named Herod. They were all related to each other. This one was the first one. He was called Herod the Great. Now, that title might seem complimentary, but it wasn't as much as we might imagine. Herod had kind of a mixed record. He had been appointed governor of Galilee in his 20s. Then he was condemned by the Sanhedrin. That was kind of the, the ruling political religious body of Israel. He was condemned by them for being too brutal. Then he ran to, hell, uh, to Rome for help because he got challenged and there was a kind of a threat to his rules. So he ran to Rome and said, please help me. Please make sure that, that I stay in power. And he was elected by the title, get this now, King of the Jews by a Roman Senate about 45 years before Christ was born. Now, hold on to that thought. Before 45 years, four and a half decades, before Jesus is born, before this passage takes place, the Roman Senate said to Herod, you are king of the Jews. Now, Herod tried to fit in. He tried to, to play all the angles and, and, and be bipartisan, so to speak. So he started to practice Judaism. He started to act like a Jew, uh, to be to be kind of uh, politically uh, tactician in, in his thinking. But the Jews didn't recognize him as a full-fledged Jew. They knew that he was a Roman, and they didn't see him as a member of the Jewish faith. But Herod kept playing the part, and for 55 years, he stayed in power. Now, that might be impressive, but historians look at Herod the Great, and they are not impressed. In fact, one described him as a madman who murdered his family, his wife, and many rabbis. See, Herod was really ruthless about exerting his power. And, and I believe, and I'm no historian, but I believe that may have been out of insecurity. 
he really wasn't that great a king. He wasn't really respected. He, he didn't really accomplish very much other than uh, building the temple again and restoring the seaport in Caesarea. But, but all in all, when you look at Herod's rule, he wasn't really that great of a leader. And the problem was he wasn't self-aware about it. He really thought highly of himself. In that way, he's like a lot of our politicians, isn't he? Kind of uh, not aware that we're all frustrated and not aware that that uh, we're, we're tired of watching them argue and not solve anything. And what's going to be fascinating is when they finally do come up with some kind of inadequate answer that still gives us a lot of taxation without representation. Uh, watch, watch how they strain their arms to pat themselves on the back and hug each other and say, we knew all along we could get there. This was the kind of person that Herod was. He was, he was the kind of person that, that wasn't aware that people didn't really respect him. And what made it even worse is that, that he was really defiant against the Lord. The Bible's re- replete with, with politicians and with kings who were defiant against the Lord, like Ahab, who was fearful and, and weak, but was controlled by his wife Jezebel and became very wicked and evil and tried to, to turn the nation against God. You've got other kings like, uh, like uh, uh, Solomon who, who kind of compromised his values and, and allowed the nation to eventually be divided because he was so enamored with women and he wanted to have sex with a thousand women and followed their false gods even though God warned him about it. Or, or Uzziah who was so full of pride even though God had blessed him so richly and he became full of himself and refused to repent when he committed a great sin in the temple. You've got all these different kings who, who, were, who were either resistant against God or drifted from God. And then you've got Herod. When we read the text here, every action that he takes shows his spiritual insincerity. Look back at the text for a minute. Because when the wise men come to the palace and they're looking for this baby who will become the eternal savior and king, they're surprised to find out that Herod doesn't know anything about it. You would think the king of the nation would know what's going on, but, but Herod doesn't. And when he finds out the news, he's openly scared and ticked off at the same time. Look at it. It's uh, here in verse 3. It says that he was troubled. We'll come back to that in a minute. But there are, there are really problems that this news creates. In fact, there are five distinct problems that he has to deal with. And the way he deals with them reveal the true nature of his heart. In verse 2, they say, hey, we've come from, from the east. And we're looking for this child that has been born who is king of the Jews. Now, that had to sting a little bit. That was an ironic question because, oh, by the way, look at my title. I'm king of the Jews. And now you're asking about another king of the Jews? How that must have felt for Herod. How he must have been disturbed by that. He's the Roman king over a Jewish nation. So the word of another king would not only challenge his authority, but it would challenge Rome's authority. So the first problem that Herod had was here was a threat to his future. And the second problem he had, which was just as acute in my mind, is that he now was having his pride be confronted. Because no longer was he the main guy. 
No longer was he the one now that everybody looked at and was either fearful of or respected. Now these magi, these wise men, these scholars and scientists have come from far away and they say, we've not only come to find out what's going on, but we've come to worship him. See, Herod was the ruler. He was the man who was in charge of the nation and he had been for five decades. He had the Jewish leaders under his thumb. He had control over them. If they got out of line or he felt like they were not respecting him, he'd just go kill a couple rabbis to send a message. And he had that weakling Pilate under his thumb. Pilate didn't know what he was doing. He was a coward. He was a politician for the sake of being a politician. He wasn't any kind of a leader. And Herod controlled him. Pilate had to go to Herod and ask for permission. And the people were scared of him because he was a Roman ruler. And the Jewish nation wasn't strong at this point. It had been scattered four centuries before. And it was in disarray still. So Rome is there. The Jewish leaders, the religious leaders are under his thumb. The people are terrified. And here's Herod. And then these men come in. And they say, we're looking for the real king. We, we want to know where the new king is. All of a sudden, there's a challenger to his throne. And none of us do very well when our pride is threatened, do we? Herod was no exception. What happens when our, when our pride gets stepped on a little bit? I don't know if that happened to you this year. I know it happened to me a number of times where we kind of feel hurt and shaken and, and somebody's been critical or whatever the case may be. And when that happens to us, when we have our pride hurt or threatened, we tend to do strange things, don't we? We damage friendships or, or we sabotage relationships through criticism or gossip or we become emotionally and spiritually calloused. We, we stop listening to the Spirit's conviction, and we, we, we stop listening to His leading. We're, we're all about our personal satisfaction. Or we stop praying, and we stop trusting, and we start to massage God's Word to fit our own bias. And maybe we even criticize somebody else, a brother or sister, when they come to us and say, what's going on with you? Something's not right. I've been watching you and, and something's, something's off. Are you okay? Oh, I'm fine. Doing good. It's all good. And then when they turn around and walk away out of concern for us, we criticize them to somebody else. We say, oh, I can't believe it. Can you believe what's the arrogance of them coming up? And I mean, these are the things that happens when our pride gets going. Pride's a nasty thing. It has a thousand different tentacles that go out. And we have to daily ask the Spirit, Lord, convict me of my pride and clear it out of my system and guard me against it because it's going to eat my lunch if I'm not careful. Look back at the text for a minute. Herod is so full of pride. And he's full of pride even in this situation where he can clearly see the direct connection to the Lord as part of what was going on in Bethlehem. Three different prophecies fulfilled. The wise men come and say, there's this king of the Jews and we've come to worship him. And Herod had been in Jerusalem long enough, five decades, to know Jewish history, to know prophecy. It probably didn't surprise him when, when the, the scholars come in verse 
uh, 6, and they say, here's what was written in the prophecy. Micah wrote about this, and he prophesied that someday in Bethlehem, this ruler was going to be born, and Herod's blood starts to boil, and he knows that this is significant. This is not just some coincidence or some minor thing he could just dismiss and say, ah, it's no big deal. This is serious time. And he says, I'm troubled by that. The word is very interesting in the text. It means to be agitated, restless, and fearful. In other words, his stomach starts to churn. And he starts to get anxious and fearful. And it says not only he was disturbed, Look at the text. It says all Jerusalem was disturbed with him. It made me wonder this week, did did he give some kind of a public speech and tell them what was going on? Or or did the word just leak out onto the street and gather? Whatever the case may be, all of the city was disturbed by what was going on. And Herod gets together the chief priests and the scribes. He's clearly unashamed and, and clearly nervous enough that he gathers everybody and says, tell me what's going on. Come on, give me some details. I gotta, I gotta know what this threat is all about. And they come and say, well, here's the prophecy. This child is going to be born in Bethlehem, and he's going to be the one who is going to rule rule and shepherd Israel. Now, it's at that point, here's where it gets interesting. It's at that point that Herod starts to put his plan in motion. To eliminate the threat to his pride and to his rule. He secretly, look at it, verse 7, he secretly calls the wise men back. I don't know if it was under the cover of night, but but it was not an open thing that he did. He somehow got word of them. Maybe they snuck into the palace, try to get the picture in your mind. He's sitting there on his throne, and they're kind of walking in. The palace is quiet, and they come into the into the palace and come before his throne. And he says, I want to know specifics. Tell me when you saw the star. Tell me where it's going to be. Uh, we need to find this baby. Now, Notice that he's had plenty of time to think about the implications of his actions. It's obvious at this point that he has a plan to kill Jesus. And it's here in verse 8 that he says one sentence that shows his spiritual insincerity. It says, he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me, here's the phrase, so that I too may come and worship him. Now, there's no question that Herod had absolutely no intention of worshiping Jesus Christ. And that's confirmed by the fact that the Lord warns the wise men, don't go back. In fact, take another route home because he's going to try to follow you. He's determined to kill Jesus. And when he learns that you guys don't come back and tell him where Jesus is, he's going to try to kill you. So go home a different way. Then the Lord appears to Joseph and he says, Joseph, we got problems. So you can't stay here anymore. You have to go down to Egypt and you don't have time to pack. Go right now, can you imagine what Joseph, Joseph's feeling? He's in Nazareth. He has to go to Bethlehem to register for the census. Mary has the baby in a stable. These shepherds come. Then, then he settles in Bethlehem for a while. And then uh, the wise men come. And then the next thing you know is God says, get to Egypt. Joseph's an amazing man. 
So in the middle of the night, he packs up and they go down to Egypt. Now, Herod, needless to say, look at it, is absolutely ticked. So to make sure his bases are covered, because Jesus is not a baby at this point, the wise men were not at the manger. I know that's our Christmas scene, but they weren't there. The baby's a child at this point. He's living in a house. So the wise men come, and he's a little toddler. He's he's walking around. He's not yet two, but he's also not in Mary's arms. And to cover his bases, Herod says, we're going to kill every male child under the age of two, in Bethlehem, and in all the vicinity around it. Now, what Herod does here makes what has happened in Connecticut over the last few weeks seem almost tame. Historians estimate that there were about a 1,000 people living in Bethlehem at the time this takes place. So they estimate, I don't know if this is accurate, but this the research that at least 20 to 30 babies, male, were under the age of two in Bethlehem. But when you include the surrounding area, it could have been into the hundreds because just six miles away is Jerusalem. So what's the surrounding area? Was that just, you know, a mile away? Was it three miles away? Was it ten miles? We don't know. The scripture is not completely clear on it. But we do know it was not just confined to Bethlehem. It was in all the areas outlying it. So let's say, for the sake of argument, that Herod sends out his soldiers to hundreds of homes. He grabs the child out of the mother's arms, uh, if it's a baby, or he grabs, a soldier grabs the toddler and just murders it right there in the house and walks out. All throughout the region, wailing and weeping and mourning, fulfilling prophecy. As a hundred, two hundred young boys, the hope of their family, the precious gift that God had given them, are murdered by this king. What a contrast to the picture of the wise men worshiping Jesus in verse 10, praising God for his deliverance of mankind. You see, the devil wants to destroy and kill. The devil absolutely loves what happened in Connecticut. He hates the fact that God loves us. He hates the fact that Christ came to sacrifice and redeem us. And he is infuriated that the Holy Spirit indwells us and sanctifies us so we can become like Jesus. So if he can't make us evil and defiant and destructive like Herod, he is going to at least work very hard in this next year to make you and me indifferent about our faith and hypocritical and insincere in our walk by being selfish and worldly. We're going to study next week Jeremiah 29. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. But I'm telling you, the devil's also got some plans for us this year. He wants to drag us away from the Lord, not to give him any credit. He wants to drag us away from the Lord. He wants to make us prayerless. He wants to make us joyless. He wants to make us indifferent. He wants us to be insincere and hypocritical and to fall into sin and be duplicitous and all kinds of things. And God says, that's not what I died for you for. Listen, don't forget Christmas so quickly. Don't don't lose the joy of it uh, uh, until we get to Easter. And then, oh, okay, we'll celebrate the Lord again. And then we've got a seven-month gap till Christmas comes again. 
The joy of the Lord is our, tell me, strength. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Don't let the post-Christmas kind of zap you of your strength now. Come on, I know we're all physically not strong this morning. But don't let that happen spiritually. God has moved in the last year. God is moving in that city in China. I don't know why, but I'm excited about it. God is going to work in the next year in your life and my life, in your family and my family, in your kids and my kids. In this church, God's going to work. And we need to be ready for it. Because if the Lord looks down from heaven and says, I don't know about those people. I don't, I don't know if they really love me or not. I can't tell. Not that God would ever say that, but you know what I mean. Where's the fruit? Where's the passion? Where's the love? Where, where's the sincerity of heart? What's the temptation going to be for us? Let me conclude. What threats should we be guarding against in the next year? And what questions should we constantly be asking ourselves so that we can walk righteously and speak with sincerity? I believe the Lord really wants to ex- us to examine ourselves in four areas in 2013. I'm going to give you these very quickly and then we're going to pray. Each of these things was deliberately disregarded by Herod. And I'm sure there are more than four, but as I studied and prayed this week, these are the four that the Lord said, do those this Sunday. All right, so let's write these down. Let's let's open our heart and mind to what the Holy Spirit wants to tell us. And let's ask the Lord to give us wisdom and understanding about what he really needs to change in our lives. Okay, four questions. Number one, do you really love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Do you really love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? See, Herod loved himself. And he took actions to protect himself and promote himself. And while none of us would ever do anything as ruthless as what he did, we have to examine ourselves closely because love of self manifests itself in so many different ways. And all of them are contrary to loving the Lord with all that we have. What's it mean to love? It means to trust and to sacrifice and to yield and to praise and to draw close and to experience complete joy in someone's presence. It is living to please them and not to please yourself at any time. Imagine if our marriages were like that. I'm going to live to please you and never to please myself. Well, they'll take advantage of me. Uh-uh. Men, that's how we're supposed to love our wives. As Christ loved the church. Women, that's how you're supposed to love your husbands. Imagine if we love the Lord that way. Does that, does that describe our relationship with the Lord? That everything we're going to do in the next year. Is to please the Lord. And not please myself. And if it isn't, what will it take in terms of the sacrifice of ourself and our will to live that way in the new year? There's something all of us need to sacrifice on the altar of self to be able to love the Lord more. Question number two. Are you really thrilled? Are you really thrilled to be known as a Christian? 
Are you really thrilled to be known as a Christian and to take a stand for the Lord? See, Herod was a Jew in name only. It was religiously and politically expedient for him to be, quote-unquote, a Jew. It was helpful for his reputation. He could leverage that for his job. Is that the definition of Christianity for us? If there is spiritual inconsistency in our lives, or we are hesitant to live openly for Jesus Christ, people will not be fooled. It's like we said earlier, the world is looking at us and evaluating, what does Rhodes really believe? What do I hear him say to his kids while he's out in the yard? How do I see him drive? I'm picking on myself now. This is painful, okay? I'm under conviction right now. How does he drive? Is he impatient in the line at the grocery store? Does he see good things? Does he expose his heart and his mind to, to what is impure so that he's jaded? Does he, does he love the Lord? Does he call on the Lord? Does he sacrifice for the Lord? Does he serve the Lord? I mean, these are the questions. The world is looking at us and saying, what's that person all about? Are you honored and grateful and proud? Know the right way I use that word. Are you proud this morning to be known as a believer, to be known as a follower of Jesus Christ? See, we're called to be ambassadors for Christ, to be his representative and witnesses in the world, telling people it is so amazing to be loved and saved by God. That's our job. And my question to you and to myself is, is it time to take a bolder stand for Christ in 2013? I'm telling you, Hobby Lobby is this morning. A million three a day just to say, we're not going to compromise our values. What are we doing? Are we willing to say, God has changed my life. He has transformed me. I am not the same. Praise the Lord. His grace is amazing. And I'm going to tell people about it. I don't care what people think. Number three. Is your worship sincere? And passionate? And expressive? Is your worship sincere and passionate and expressive? This one is totally dependent on the first two. We can talk about worship and prayer and singing and praising and lifting hands all we want. But if we don't really love the Lord and we're reticent to stand for him, our worship will be dull and lifeless. Tradition and and musical style and sound and the atmosphere of the room, none of those things matter nearly as much as we think, though we use them as the reasons for not worshiping more openly. It is ultimately a matter of the heart. And Jesus said, there's an hour that's coming and now is where the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. He is a spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. What does that mean? It doesn't mean making a show. It doesn't mean acting a part. It doesn't mean doing something because somebody asks you to and you're guilty. It means praising the Lord honestly and sincerely and zealously. That's all it means. When we praise the Lord, is it a true expression of our love for him? And then number four, and we're done. Are you serving with the right motives? 
See, Herod said the right things. And he may have even convinced the wise men because God has to come back and warn them. Hey, he's not sincere. You better go home a different way. So he played the part well. But everything was about him. And if there is anything we need to guard against in ministry, it is that. I am so grateful. I can't even begin to thank you enough. I am so grateful for how this church serves. I am so grateful for how many of you are committed to ministry. I I walked the hallway in the children's area before church and I saw all the brothers and sisters that are back there this morning giving their time and their effort to minister to kids. Our ushers and our greeters and our people at the information table and those that are running tech and those that led worship. I mean, all of you invested into this. It's the only way we can make it as a church is if you're invested to it. But, but as we do that, let's make sure that people only see Christ. That he is magnified and he is praised and that it's not about what we want or what we feel or what we need. That is driven by a deep love and a genuine faith and a spiritual sincerity. And I pray that will be true in amazing ways in our church in this new year. Listen, across the world, there are believers in China that are apparently excited about the Lord this morning, even though their conditions are hostile. And if God can somehow use us to encourage them, how much more is he planning to do in our midst in the next year? Guys, we need to get excited about that. And we need to start saying, Lord, speak. Your servant listens. We're ready. May God help us. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you this morning for what you're doing in our midst. And we ask you for your help and for your guidance. Lord, you know the cost of pride. We see it in the life of Herod. But Lord, I pray with all my heart that that would not be true of us as believers and it would not be true of us as church that we would be a people, Lord, committed completely to you, that our love for you and our desire for you would be so strong in this new year, that our witness would be bold and confident, Lord, and that you would use us in an amazing, powerful way. We praise you, Lord, as we look back. What you have done in lives this year is so incredible. People who have gotten saved and people who have committed their lives to you and people who have taken a stand by being baptized, who have sensed a calling from you, who have served you in a new way. Lord, all praise to you for what you have done in our lives and in our midst. And now, Lord, we ask you to do more. We ask you to do more in our midst and to use us in any way you would want to use us, to lead us in any way that you want to lead us. And Lord, that you would find our hearts to be sincere. Father, work in us this morning in any area of our life that is not sincere and yielded and humbled before you. Break down, Lord, the the hardness of sin and self. Begin to work in a new way in our lives. Lord, we're excited by what you're going to do. We trust you when we praise you. And we look to you now for your leading. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.